following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcasting Network. For a full list of our shows, as well as breaking sports news and engaging feature stories, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com. Welcome back to another episode of Create Your Shot. I am Tyler Laurie, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Chris Smalls-Angelos, who is mourning the Eagles this fine Monday morning, but he has been kind enough to join us for our what I think is our 96th episode, so we've done a ton. And uh, today, Smalls, a guy with a super interesting background, Chris Spatola, former Army basketball player, former Army serviceman served on Coach K's staff for five years at Duke, and now ESPN College basketball analyst, Sirius XM radio host, athletic contributor. He is everywhere basketball is found. And Smalls was nice enough to give us about an hour and 20 minutes of his time, and we covered a ton of topics. Yeah, we really did. And I think we, you know, we almost, we always joke about this, but there was like five different topics where we could have had six-hour shows on each topic. That's like how much I think back and forth and we had to hold back a couple of times, but it, it was enjoyable. And I think getting a person's perspective that, you know, was in coaching, was in the highest level of coaching and then took his career a different direction, came from the military, super unique. And his story is anything but, I guess, like. It's it's just incredible what he did and the decisions he had to make to get where he wanted to go and to be happy ultimately. Yeah, I think that I am just if we're looking at self reflection for a second, Smalls. I think often when we prep for interviews, like I, I, I we find a couple things that we think are interesting and kind of shape the interview around this. This was one of the first interviews where we legitimately really went in chronological order and kind of like covered his life from you know college basketball on. And it just was so interesting to see the different sort of like twists and turns that he took and and why he made those decisions. And then we do, we cover a little bit of college basketball as well for people on here that are like, man, you guys talk way too much. Like we did, you know, Chris is a guy that's covered a bunch of games this year as a color guy. And we did cover a bunch of stuff like who can win the title, talked about, you know, the Duke freshman, talked about Tennessee. So that part of it was interesting, but I I do think like from a chronological standpoint, just kind of covering his life from 18 to now was really fascinating and and, kind of listening to him and how he grew up and how the military shaped him, but also how it taught him different things about himself that worked and didn't work. I've never heard somebody say that Smalls, where like you go to West Point and everyone's like, oh, it taught me how to do this. Like he even talked about how West Point taught him what he wasn't good at, which I thought was fascinating. Yes. Yeah. That was one of the cooler things I thought I took from this interview was there's so much failure there, I think is, and I'm probably not saying it correctly, but there's so many opportunities to fail and you fail so much that you learn how to deal with that failure and that adversity. And that's how it kind of shapes you and teaches you. And he's taken that even further in his life. And to my other point, I just think, and looking back on the interview, it's probably what gave him the confidence to be able to say, you know, this isn't for me. I'm at Duke. Like it, it, sometimes it's easy for us to say that you're at Plattsburgh State and you're making negative eight thousand dollars a year at Plattsburgh State in upstate New York, and you don't want to do coaching. But to have the confidence and you know the self confidence to be able to say, "Hey, I can step away from Duke 
and I can be happy and I want to do this and be really good at the next thing he does. That that's pretty special. And I think West Point definitely conditioned him to be able to do that and ultimately succeed wherever he wants to go. You're you're right about that. You you're a hundred percent right. But also the one other thing too, it's like we tend to have a lot of preconceived notions, just as individuals, not not you and I in general. I'm I'm gonna paint with a broad brush broad brush, which I never like to do, but I am going to do it for a second. We tend to have a lot of preconceived notions. And one of the things about Chris Patola is that he is Coach K's son-in-law. Uh, and, and so naturally, I think people would be like, oh, okay, you're in Coach K's family tree. Like, you can do whatever job you want. And he told us a story just kind of off the cuff. Like, we weren't even really talking about it, but off the cuff about him trying to make a good impression on CBS Sports. That, like, when we say, like, yes, people end up with opportunities. And I'm sure, like, he would say he's been very fortunate. Like, he gets to go work at Duke. Like... But he made his opportunities himself, Smalls. And there's a story later on in the episode during 10 Touches that he tells that I even stopped to point out, like, you can't just make it off your name. You don't make it because you're a college basketball player. You don't make it because of who your father or your father-in-law is. Like, that happens. But we've had a bunch of coaches on the show whose parents are, you know, Division One coaches or in media and whatever. And, like, those guys work really hard. And I'll be the first to admit it, Smalls. Like, I, it was very easy for me as a graduate assistant at Temple to sit there and be like, well... You know, I didn't work for Rick Pitino, so I can't get this job. Like, or, you know, my dad wasn't a high major head coach, so I'm not going to be a coach. And like, you know, at some point, guys, you got to look in the mirror and be like, are you being outworked by these guys, even with their last names? Like, and that's the part about like Chris's interview that I appreciated. Like, we could have talked about Duke a lot. We could have talked about, you know, his relationships with with Coach K. But like, instead, like, you got to listen to the things that he's done and the way that he's made his career and the decisions that he's made, because that's why he's where he is, not because of his connections. and. I just think like it's, you know, whether it's Chris or it's Pete Lapis or it's Phil Martelli Jr. or it's Joe Mahalik, like those guys have all said the same thing. Like they want to be known for who they are and that they work their ass off. Not not like, hey, I'm Joe Mahalik's son or hey, I'm Coach K's son-in-law, like give me a job. It's not how this shit works. And I think like it's funny now I'm going to turn 30 in a, in a month. It's funny now realizing that that I, you know, when, it, when I was 22 or 23, I was just like, oh, yeah, it's so much easier for those guys. Bottom line, Smalls. I was wrong. It's it's not that easy for those guys. They work just as hard. Yeah. And I think like listeners out there, you know, that's an important thing to realize is the deck may be stacked against you. You might be right, but it's definitely stacked against you if those guys are going to outwork you too. Sure. It only takes you so far too, I think, like the namesake or, you know, in this case, you know, family connections. It can take you to a point, maybe it opens a door that there was no chance of you ever opening if you didn't have those connections. But it's about what you do when you're in the room when you open that door. And I think Chris really gets that. He embodies that. And he mentioned it. He started from the bottom um, in terms of his journalism career. Uh, and he worked his way up. And I think he's doing great things. I'm looking forward to hearing more college basketball takes and, uh, you know, a- as this season kind of unfolds in college basketball. Yeah, the potential for the three of us to get in like a shouting match about disagreements if we have him back on the show. And I'm, I'm hoping he will come back on the show later in the year for a shorter episode about like, you know, maybe the NCAA tournaments or conference tournaments, just like a Friday episode for him to come back on and talk because it's very clear that he is, you know, got a lot of poignant things to say. But I think there's some lightning rod potential between the three of us as we are all three very opinionated. And I think, you know, we're very diplomatic today to take a U.S. government term. It seems fitting. But yeah, I think the potential smalls for us to, you know, shout at each other about, you know, who the number one overall seed should be is is definitely there. But, you know, Chris Patola, awesome guy. Like I said, he's he's really, you know, worked hard to become a, a high level analyst on ESPN now calling a lot of different games. So 
you know, you turn it on on Saturday or Sunday, you, you will definitely see him. He also plugged his ACC Today show on Sirius XM Radio. Not a big deal. But uh, really fun interview. And like I said, this is episode 96 from us. So if you're still listening by now, you, you know what I'm about to say. But if you like what you hear, you know, please leave us five stars and leave us a review on iTunes. Same deal as always. If you do leave a review and you screenshot and send it to us, I will send you a free koozie. Uh, we are create your shot on Twitter, create your shot pod on Instagram, create your shot on Facebook and create your shot at gmail.com. A lot of ways to get in touch with us. We've had some awesome guests lately. Our guy, Peyton Siva, uh, 12 points, I believe six assists, no turnovers in Alba Berlin's game last weekend. So his first game back. So happy to see that he got the create your shot bump. Joe Mahalik and Penn, uh, they beat Miami, I believe this past week. So that's a big bump. They play Nova this week on Tuesday night, uh, when this airs. So. You know, awesome for Penn. They're definitely going to beat Nova because he's getting the CYS bump smalls. <laughs> so it's like guaranteed yeah. to take all your money and bet it on Penn. Uh, but other than that, uh, Friday episode has been a lot of fun winding down with the pick and winners. Smalls goes four and one this past week. I'm sure he would have much rather gone one and four and had the Eagles win. But we will absolutely talk about that game on Friday. And last but not least, you can hear me on Thursdays on the Underdog Sports NBA show with Zandrick Ellison. So. I mean, that's a mouthful, Smalls. I talk a lot, and we talk a lot with Chris Spatola, but please enjoy this week. We talk college basketball, talk his career, talk about his uh, career choices and why, and just an awesome interview. And, and again, you know, thanks as always for listening, for everybody that's listened through 96 episodes. You know, we are happy to be here, and we are going to keep doing it until they tell us we can't. So enjoy this week with Chris Spatola, and thanks as always for listening. Spatola, ESPN college basketball analyst, radio host, athletic contributor, writer. Uh, you, you're everywhere, Chris. So it's, it's hard to keep it keep track of it. But I appreciate you joining us. You know how are you this morning? I'm doing great. It's great to be on with you with you guys. Uh, I think overexposure was the word you're looking for. Perhaps I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I mean I don't think so. I don't think so. I figured you'd be in a good mood today because. <laughs> You are you are a uh, West Point grad and Army beat Navy this Saturday. So my first question, this is just a one part question: Is this the best day of the year for Army grads? Like this Monday when you get to talk to all your friends about beating Navy? Yes, it is. There is it is unequivocally the best day. Um, I was doing a game on on uh, this past weekend with John Shambi, and I was giving him hell during the broadcast. Uh, he wasn't giving enough love to this game. I said, I said, Boog. We lost to them for 14 straight years. We have now beaten them three years in a row. We, this, is a, this is an epic moment in Army-Navy history for us. Yeah, and it was a, it was a good game. Like People complain about like, it being low scoring and everything, but it was a really good game. I, I was pretty impressed with uh, Army's quarterback. I was pretty impressed with Navy switching quarterbacks and getting back into the game late after uh, – I think they got hosed on the replay call in the fourth <laughs> quarter. I just think like – when you review something for 10 minutes, at some point, you're just like, all right, that's enough. You know, like it's, it's inconclusive, but it's always fun to see too. It's like 20 degrees there and no one leaves. Like the cadets are all there. Midshipmen are all there at the end of the game. But 
what what drew you originally to West Point as a basketball player? Can you kind of walk us through like your high school and recruiting before you got to West Point and why you ultimately chose to go there? Yeah, it's, you know, I was the, the anti-cadet, to be honest with you. Um, I have no family, military background. Nobody in my family was in the military. Uh, I was playing in an AAU tournament and Dino Gaudi, it actually, he, it was one of his assistants, uh, Dino Gaudi, who was the head coach at Army at the time, and, and one of his assistants, Marcus Perez, uh, saw me at an AAU tournament. And they just, you know, they started recruiting me. And it, it wasn't real heavy at first. And, and part of that was because I wasn't real heavy. I was you know, probably 140 pounds at the time and six feet tall and not much to look at. But, um, you know, they kind of stayed on me, stayed, stayed, stayed with me. Um, you know, my parents are both, were both teachers. Uh, my, my dad was actually teaching at the time. My mom was a stay, stay-at-home mom. So, we, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of money. So the opportunity to go to college for free was, was a, a big part of my college decision process. Uh, we went on the visit to Army, and I still give Coach Gaudio hell to this day because he, you know, on the visit, he really recruited my parents. He may have said about five or six words to me. He really went at my parents hard. Um, and West Point is a beautiful place. So it was, yeah. you know, the visit kind of, kind of sold us. We got home and, and, um, and my dad said, you, you are going to, you are going to go to West Point. Right. And it was kind of off from there. Um, and they gave me a chance to go to the prep school for a year. Uh, all the military academies have a prep school. So I, I got to do that for a year and, uh, and then was up at West Point. So you actually never played for Dino Gaudio, though, right? No. He did you? Yeah, I didn't think so. Was he there with the year you were at prep school, and then he left, or and then he went to take another job, or did you? Yeah. Did he leave right away? No, he he left uh, the year I was at the prep school, and then um, yeah, he went to take another job, and they ended up hiring uh, a guy who I had I had great affection for, uh, a guy who played for Coach K at Army, uh, a guy named Pat Harris. So, but uh, no, I, he recruited me there. He got me there. Uh, I, I ended up fifth all-time leading scorer there, but uh, but Coach Gaudio never never got to coach me. So, so you actually mentioned one thing that I thought was interesting, and our listeners may not know this, but at the time that you went to Army, obviously that is paid for, but the Patriot League was still no scholarships, if I remember correctly. Yep. And you were actually featured in, in a book, Last Amateurs, by uh, John Feinstein, really good book. What, what was kind of that like for you as a college student? I, I mean, I'm sure you've probably read it and cringed at some of the things that people said, but you know that specific part of your career when you had a guy following you around on some teams that were good in the Patriot League, but what, what was that like? It was pretty surreal, to be honest with you. And, and it started from the the idea that I had grown up reading John Feinstein stuff. Like I had read season on a brink, um, you know, just a, a, an iconic sports writer uh, at the time and still is. So, you know, I don't know if it was the military humility, if it was, um, if it was just my general humility, but I was like, why is John Feinstein writing a book about this league? Like why would John Feinstein dedicate and a publisher dedicate this amount of time, money and resource to cover the Patriot League. Um, and when I sat down with John for the first time, and it was before the season, and he went around to each school and interviewed, you know, the captains of the teams and interviewed some of the players on each team, you know, his reasoning and his rationale for doing it made, made a ton of sense. You know, it was, it was a league that was no scholarships, as you pointed out, except for the military academies who, who 
thank you, fellas. My my education was paid by your your wonderful tax money, but. Um, <laughs> It was, you know, so it, his premise was great, and it was it was an opportunity. He said to report on on a league where players were playing just for the love of the game, and um, and it is a great book. But having John around for certain games and in the locker room while while you're doing stuff and and reporting on all of it, and then the ultimate product was was pretty surreal. It was really cool. What was the biggest challenge for you when entering, you know, West Point? And I, I can imagine that's kind of a shock for you specifically because you don't, as you mentioned, have that military background or, you know, you weren't that sold on it maybe initially. So what was the biggest challenge for you? You know, it, it, it's hard to, to nail down just one. And I think that's probably the the crux of my answer is that there are a lot like you are confronted and that's part of the design of the military academy is that you are confronted on all fronts by adversity um by opportunities to fail um so you know the thing everybody assumes it's getting yelled at and and there were times where you know like I'm a plebe at West Point and I've got a sophomore who's probably 6 months older than I am um, and really, in most cases, probably not because I spent a year at the prep school and you're getting screamed. At. And, and so, you know, there were times where I'm like, yo, dude, like chill out. And that was tough, you know, but but the getting yelled at and the, and the that type of stuff didn't really bother me because I, you know, my dad was my high school coach and he was a tough old school kind of guy. And, and I had kind of lived in that world. Um, but it's, you know. It's the schedule, the getting up early, the grind. The academics there are incredibly tough. And, and for somebody who – I'm a real, relatively smart guy, but I don't necessarily – I wasn't the hardest working student, uh, so that was tough. Um, you know, buying into the, the military component of it. Like I had never seen myself as, as a lieutenant in the Army, um, and I went there pre-9-11. So, I mean, it's – you know, it, it, the, the Army I went into was vastly different than the one I joined. but. It was a lot of stuff. It just, you know, you acclimate to it over time. But um, it's and then, you know, I had friends who you, you, you have the opportunity to call them and talk to them. And like on a Friday night, they're going out and they're partying and they're having fun at, you know, their fraternities or whatever. And you're sitting in the barracks in your uniform, grinding away on an organic chemistry uh, problem set. So, you know, that that also made it that may have been the toughest, to be honest with you. Yeah, and then. So later in your life and now, do you still carry some of that stuff with you that you took from West Point in terms of the regimen and the different, you know, disciplinary kind of measures? Do you still have that? Is still that's still instilled in you? Or are you still waking up early and things like that? Yeah, yeah. You, there's a lot you can't get away from. You know, the, the best thing about that place is it gives you the opportunity to see the best of that lifestyle. And it also gives you an opportunity to learn from the worst of that lifestyle. So like this idea of in with the good, out with the bad. And, and that's how the place is designed. Like that's one of the reasons you spend your first couple of years there as a follower. You can't learn how to lead. You can't become a leader unless you follow at some point in your life. And, and it's the same with the lifestyle. You know, you, you, you learn the things that work for you and the things that make you better that you would have never found, at least me, at another school or institution because West Point forces you to do it. And, and so there are things that I have used throughout my life that, um, that have made, have gotten me to where I am and have made me better. 
And there are things that I learned that I was able to say, you know, that doesn't work in moments of adversity and moments when things need to be done right. That doesn't work. And, and so that's the best part. You know, everybody says, well, you gain all these great things. Well, you gain some bad things, too, that you're able to then also apply. And, um, and there are a lot of things, like to your question, there are a lot of things that I never thought would be like the getting up early, the attention to detail that I have. Um, there are a lot of things that I have just become a part of who I am that I never expected would ever become a part of who I am. We've had a couple guys on the show that have been assistants at West Point. Uh, we've had Quentin Farrell, Justin Jennings, Kevin App, and one of the things we've asked them is about recruiting, and, and it is a little bit daunting, I guess. You can pitch it as the best public school in the country, but also you do have a five-year active duty commitment when you graduate. But you actually were a GA for a year after you graduated. Was that was that by design, or did you you know want to push back your commitment, or or were you nervous about going overseas or potentially getting deployed? What what kind of was the rationale there for you? You know, they West Point's got a, a really cool program where they allow um, one player from the team, you know, the year before to stay on as a grad assistant. So I was chosen as that guy to do it. Uh, typically, I think it is a year. But because 9-11 happened my senior year, and so the Army was ramping up to deployment. So this was 2002. We went into Afghanistan in 2003. And so I actually only got to be a GA for six months. The, the oh, Army, really? Yeah. So the Army basically said, look, we need you. You need to get off to your field artillery uh, basic course. And, and so that'll be the end of your grad assistant period. The cool thing about my experience, though, is... My coach at Army, Pat Harris, got fired uh, after my senior year. And so I got to be a grad assistant for Jim Cruz, who was hired as the new head coach there. So it, it, it gave me an opportunity to learn a different way of doing things. Uh, he was, Jim Cruz is one of the best motion offense coaches I've ever been around. So it got me an opportunity to learn that. Um, so it is a, it is the grad assistant position is by design. Uh, I just, you know, mine wasn't quite as long as I think the normal tour uh, is. How was your your five years active duty? I keep saying that over and over again, like it's this yeah. daunting task. You know, you knew you knew you were getting into it. Everyone knows they're getting into it. You know, I would say you're a college student and you're preparing for that. But can you totally be prepared? Like you said, especially after 9-11, did you, you know, what was the adjustment going overseas like? You know, it's, I had a, um, he's now the superintendent actually at West Point. He was an officer representative for us when I was at, at West Point. And again, I wasn't the, I wasn't your model cadet. Like I, I was a stubborn guy, uh, still am in some respects, but I was much more stubborn back then. I wanted to fight the system, so to speak. And I was going to be that cadet. And, you know, he pulled me aside at one point and he said, look, man, at some point you're going to graduate from here, hopefully. And you're going to be standing in front of 35 people in a platoon. Most of them, if not all of them, are going to be older than you. And they're going to look at you and they're going to say, okay, what's next, Lieutenant? And you better have the answer. And the answers are all here at West Point if you apply yourself. And like that was my introduction. That kind of woke me up to say, you know, this is serious business. And so, you know, look, I deployed in 2005. I was there for, in Iraq for a year. That was a, it was a tough year. It was a fulfilling year. Um, there's a lot that I draw on um, 
from that year uh, that that helped my profession professional experience now. Um, so you know it what it what it taught me it was as as good an incubator for a young professional as you can get. I mean, again, like you're a lieutenant, you're you're become a platoon leader. You are in charge of a lot of equipment, millions of dollars worth of equipment. You're in charge of 35 lives. You're you're in charge of a lot. And and I don't think there's any any realm of the professional world where you can get that type of responsibility so quickly. And you know, that was that was awesome because I felt like I was capable of doing it. I felt like I had been prepared to do it. Uh, so it was, I, 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 would I go back and do the five years over again? Probably not. I've loved my life, uh, that I've had since, but, um, but I would never give back those five years and I would never give back that year I spent, uh, deployed to combat. Yeah, I could, I could see that. I mean, did you, we, you know, we worked for, we worked for Fran Dumphy, both of us, and, and he was on the army hoops team with coach K back in the day. And he always talks about how like they got to go around playing basketball while other people had to serve and do all these, you know, this different stuff for their country. Did you, you, you played with the armed forces team, but you did not in your, during your, after your time as a GA, or did you still play while you were overseas? Yeah. So they, um, so I was, after my time as a GA, uh, I went off to a, a training battalion and, uh, at Fort Sill uh, after my basic course. And the Army, yeah, called on me and said, hey, look, we, they played, they're still doing this. We didn't think it was going to happen because, again, the Army was ramping up to go to war. But the, uh, uh, somebody, you know, they called and said they're, they're doing the Armed Forces Tournament, which is basically the all Marines, all Navy, all uh, Army and all Air Force have this round robin tournament, and it was at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina that year. Uh, and so I got to go be a part of that um, and and play that uh, for I think it you know it was like a we went to Fort Hood and trained for about two weeks, and then we went and played the tournament after that. And so it was probably all told about a month and a half, which was awesome because I hadn't played. To be honest, I hadn't picked up a basketball since I had had graduated, and so it, it gave me a chance to get back on the floor and. You know, I never got the opportunity to go work out for a, an NBA team or play in summer league or go over to Europe and play to, to you know, apply my basketball trade after I was done playing in college. So that was at least my one opportunity to do that. And then once I got back from that, uh, I was I was off to uh, overseas pretty quickly after that was done. After your service, you actually go and work for Coach K at Duke for five years. Talk about that adjustment period. I mean, you're coming from service, but you're working for, you know, the greatest coach of all time, arguably. And it's a, it's a huge deal, right? The, those five years might have actually been tougher from a discipline standpoint of the five years overseas. I mean, from what we see from the outside going in. Well, I was getting hazed uh, by Wojo and Chris Collins and Johnny Dawkins uh, just as much as I was at West Point. So that was uh, that was an adjustment. Um, you know, it, it was interesting because I really didn't know what to expect. I mean, I, I had um, I had I'd spent the spent the six months as a GA. Uh, but when I knew I wanted to get out of the service, I wasn't going to do more than my five years. Coach K had a spot on his staff, uh, a, a GA spot, and he said, do you want to be a coach? And, and I said, yeah. Like I, at the time, I believe that's kind of what I wanted to do and wanted to be. So he said, well, I got a GA spot. You know, come on back here. And, um, 
and, and, you know, you, you can be a part of our staff and, and see what you think and learn how to be a coach. And so I, I, you know, it was, it was unbelievable. Was it an adjustment? Absolutely. Like there was, there was a period of sort of adjusting from the military life and, and all that goes on with that. And it's a, certainly a different lifestyle. It's certainly a different, um, disposition towards your, your job and profession than being a coach was. Um, it was an adjustment for me, not being a Duke guy, like, you know, all those guys on his staff are, are played for him and were Duke guys. And I think there was a little bit of reticence from those guys to welcome somebody like me onto the staff that they needed to adjust to. Um, you know, obviously you guys know my relationship to coach. So I think there was, you know, a hurdle that I don't think coach would have ever, ever brought me back if he didn't think I was capable of doing a good job, but there was a hurdle that we had to get over as far as that goes. So it was, it, there is no, it was not easy. And, and, and everybody uh, who is adjusting or, or trying to do something, uh, a profession follow on, especially veterans, like it, it is not easy adjusting from the military to a new profession. And, and it was just because I was at Duke and working for a guy like Coach K, it was not, uh, it was not easy at first. So you mentioned, and this is awesome. You mentioned, you already mentioned Johnny Dawkins, Chris Collins, Wojo. I mean, you're in those room with those guys and they all end up going on to be high major coaches. Is Duke just like a basketball incubator? Amazing ideas, just getting tossed around constantly and figuring out the game of basketball. <laughs> Did uh, I'm sure Chris Collins gave you that word incubator, right? He, he would like to believe that it was. We we just think I think Duke basketball to the like layman. Uh, obviously, a lot of people don't like Duke basketball, but I think just in general, people don't really know what happens, yeah. right? Like we played down there a couple times. We saw that like Coach K has the little like thumbprint to get into his office or the elevator. I, I just think like people, it's kind of fascinating, right? It's just this little brotherhood where it's very tight knit, and you get to come in as you know, an outsider and, and you get to hear all these great minds. And I just, I'm just genuinely curious, like what the flow of information is like in the Duke offices. Yeah. You know, the, the cool thing for me is I got there in 2007. I was working with guys like Johnny Dawkins was there in 1986. Wojo was there in the mid nineties. Chris Collins was there in the early to mid nineties. My point is like those guys were players at Duke when Duke was still on the come up, especially Johnny. I got there in 07. So Duke had accomplished by then, like they had already won three national titles and coach K had become this icon. And so like the opportunity to learn from those guys about how that program was built and why that program, why it got to the point where coach K needed a fingerprint in an elevator and why the program was, you know, was so, uh, was so private. Why was the program? I mean, when I got there, it's a little bit different now because they're getting all these one and dones, but you know, there was a period there where we were kind of the butt of a lot of jokes and, and it wasn't, it wasn't the hate because the hate is, you know, the hate goes back to JJ Reddick and even before that, like there was always this sort of, it's, it's either you like, isn't, isn't it, isn't it, yeah, I mean, isn't that the first absolutely. guy that it, it, like, it's, everybody hated? It, it, Leitner. Yeah, yeah, Leitner. So there's always been this sort of diversion between you either like him or you, you don't. I, I think there was a period there when I first got there where we had kind of lost the, the cool factor, if you will. And, 
So I, I got there at a time where we were trying to then reestablish the brand and, and we may had to make the decision, are we going to recruit a Kyrie Irving who we assume is going to leave after a year? Do we go after an Austin Rivers who you assume is going to leave after a year? Um, so it was, it was a real transition period uh, when I got there. And then we also, you talk about an incubator, like learning from those guys was great. The, the other thing about it was USA Basketball and, and being able to, you know, I, I was able to, to help with that for, for a couple of years and, and being able to learn from guys like Mike D'Antoni and Nate McMillan and all those guys that were part of that. You talk about an incubator, like you can't put a price tag on that period either. So even closer, getting closer to the situation, you're actually Coach K's son-in-law. Were you intimidated with that whole dynamic? Like, was he ever intimidating to you? Or did you feel like you had that relationship with him that it was all good? Or did he turn into kind of like a scary father-in-law? You know, it's – a lot of people don't realize this. Like, I knew Coach – I have known and and seen Coach – from a professional standpoint, long before it became a familial relationship. Like he, I went to his camp when I was, and that's ultimately how I ended up meeting my wife. Like that's how into being a camper and becoming a better basketball player I was. I was picking up girls. But the, <laughs> the uh, I, like I knew him, he knew me as a player. I knew him as Coach K long before I ended up becoming a part of his family. So. There was never there was never an adjustment period where I had to go from like I for example I played for my dad in high school and there was definitely an adjustment from okay you're his son now you're playing for him and how do you how do you figure that relationship out and the divide between that relationship I never really needed that with Coach K just because I had always I had known him as a professional long before the familiar element to it. Um, and to his credit, like we, we made that separation, like this is business. And, you know, if we're at a family function or affair, that, that is what it is. Um, but, you know, I don't know if you guys are married, like, I, and I, so if, and if you are, I don't know what your relationship with your in-laws is, but I mean, it's, you know, like, that's the other thing it's, he's my father-in-law. So I don't know, you know, what kind of relationship people have with their fathers-in-law. It is what it is. Um, yeah. you know, I, I love my wife and, and thereby, you know, her, her dad is a part of that equation. But um, it's, it's, it's interesting. 2010, they win the national title in, in Indianapolis. Uh, interesting group of guys, guys, you know, a lot of veterans. Brian Zubek ends up, you know, maybe not having the career that he wanted to have at Duke, but then comes in as a senior and has like an unbelievable run in the tournament. Just really great. What was that season in that group of guys like? And that because I, I would say that like Duke never really has an underdog group of guys, and you won thirty five games that year. But I, I think that nobody really thought like, okay, can this team really win the national title? And then you know they really go in and, and, and are dominant in the tournament until the the championship. But what was that season and what was that group of guys like for you, Chris, especially as a younger coach? That was as fulfilling a team experience as I've ever had. And that group, like that, that group that came in and lost to VCU when they were freshmen in the NCAA tournament in the first round, that, that group was really, really special. And they were everything that's right about a team and about college athletics. Like they had been kicked around. They lost in the first round their, their freshman year. They lost in the second round of the tournament to West Virginia their sophomore year. They lost then in the Sweet 16. So there was this progression 
with that group. And you mentioned a guy like Zubek, who, had, again, had been kicked around his entire career. Lance Thomas, who hadn't really developed into the player that he was projected to be. Um, that, you know, look, looking back on it that season, that group won everything that year. Like, we won. We were in the preseason NIT. We won that. We won the ACC that year. We won the ACC tournament that year. And then we won the NCAA tournament. But that group just kind of manufactured a way to win games. And, and I think they played the game the right way. They were as good a, a defensive group and rebounding group as I've ever been around. And it manifested in a national title. And it was unexpected, which I think made it even sweeter. But um, I don't know if Coach K is ever going to have a team like that again, it, yeah. you know, based on the way he's recruiting now. But that was, that was really, really special. Did you, think, uh, did you think Gordon Hayward's shot was going to go in? You know, I was still that that little blurb of time there is such a a was such a a blur. I was still trying to figure out why we were telling Zubek to miss the free throw. To be quite honest with you, and then like you guys know, the floor, the court at the Final Four is like the benches are below the court. So yeah, so like Coach K's up there, he's talking to Zubek in the foul line. Chris Collins comes down, he's like, he told him to miss it, and we're like, wait a second, what? And then all of a sudden, Zubek misses it. Hayward has it and I saw the shot and in my head and and, you know as quickly as this can go through your mind I'm thinking well that's destined to go in like this is Butler in in Indianapolis right it's like it's ordained to happen and so there was a there was a split second where I was like man that thing's going down and then it ricocheted off but you know again that moment like there was so much going on in our mind that um, it was hard to process at all. I think watching at home, Chris, like I didn't realize how close the shot was in, yeah. in real time. Like I think when I saw the replay, I was like, oh my God, like that, that almost was a buzzer beater to win the national title. But like in real time, I think I was just like, ah, oh, yeah, it's not going to go in. And then you watched it and you were like, whoa, like you must add like your heart in your throat. It must have been one of those like slow motion type moments. And, and the crazy thing is, if you go to possession before, when Zubek actually gets fouled, which puts him to the line, Gordon Hayward had a baseline shot that just hits off the back of the, the rim. Like, I'm telling you, and I think that was, that had to have been to tie the game maybe, or no, to, I think to take the lead, because Zubek's first free throw uh, put us up too. So, I mean, Hayward had a shot to give them the lead that, I mean, just hits the back of the rim. But that was an amazing, amazing championship game aside from the fact that you had the two teams that were in it, like us with our group and then Butler and their run. And then the way that that game finished, that was a, that was an unbelievable championship game. Guys got to take a quick break to talk about our sponsors, betonline.ag. It's another huge week in sports across the NFL and NBA with some very exciting matchups. And there is only one place to get in on all this action. That's betonline.ag. Use the promo code podcast one for that 50% signup bonus. That's podcast O-N-E. Starting with the NFL, there's huge matchups with the L.A. Chargers traveling to Kansas City to face off with the Chiefs and the Patriots going to Pittsburgh to face off with the Reeling Steelers. In the NFC, the Eagles look to stay alive in the playoff race Sunday night versus the Rams, and the Cowboys look to spoil the Indianapolis Colts wildcard hopes. In the NBA, the biggest matchup this week is the team with the league's best record, the Toronto Raptors, traveling west to face the two-time defending champs, Golden State Warriors. Also, the Lakers are facing the Rockets in Houston, coming off major drama the last two, ti- last two times these teams played. 
Go online and use or use your mobile phone to sign up today at betonline.ag. You can also try in-game live betting where you can participate with all the action every play. Use the promo code PODCAST1. That's PODCAST O-N-E for a 50% sign-up bonus today. BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. And now, back to Chris Spatola. It really was. Uh, and then, not and then, but you end up leaving coaching. What brought you to that decision, making you leave coaching and maybe start a career in journalism? You know, it just wasn't for me. And people think I'm crazy. No, we don't. We understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just, you know leaving Duke and you know, wow, you got, you got a golden ticket and, and it just wasn't for me, man. And you, you, you know, at some point you look at your life five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road. And you're like, is this, and you look at where college basketball was and recruiting is a big arm of that. And I never liked that part of it. And you're like, is this where I want to be? And I'm not going to be a Duke forever. Like at some point I'm going to have, you know, state you on my, on my polo shirt at, at recruiting events. And, you know, then you got to, and it's like, do I want this for me? Do I want this for my family? Uh, quality of life has, and, and I think being in the army and deploying and quality of life, you know, you value that. It became very important to me. And um, so I actually went to coach uh, Kyrie's year, actually, in 2011. And I, I said, you know, I don't know, coach, if this is for me. Uh, I think I may want to try something else. And he said, well, give it another year. See how you feel after this coming season. We got Austin coming in. We'll, you know, see what you think. And so I, I, I did give it another year. But it just, you know, look, it, 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 I'm grateful that I did it. It informs so much of what I do now in the business. Uh, got a chance to win a national championship. I mean, God, that's that's a lifetime experience. But um, you know, but ultimately, it just it just wasn't for me. I think that says a lot about you as a person too, because. You know, and that's it's funny how you mentioned like people look at it like, whoa, you're giving away the golden ticket. But people don't understand like when you're when you're in that and it might not be for you. And it's so difficult to look at it on the outside in when you don't know it. People don't understand it's day after day. Like you're recruiting all the time, whether it's on the phone, whether you're at a game and you're not seeing your family for the majority of the year. And to realize for you to realize that. Hey, this isn't for me and to get out and to get your quality of life. That's important because 10 years later, if you stayed in for 10 more years and you're kind of looking at your life and you're not happy with it, I mean, what's that worth? So I think that's a really good point. I think that's something young coaches, especially when we talk about on this podcast, getting into this business, you've got to make sure, yeah, you give it a shot and you do it. But if you're not happy and if you just keep pushing through it, it, you might you might really regret it down the line, and I don't think it is for everybody. So I I just wanted to comment and say I think that's a good point that it's not always very singular, I guess, in thinking. And and I would say, Chris, too, I think your mindset of like you did it for you know four years, you said I don't think this is for me. Coach K says give it another year. You do, and you realize it's not for you is different than a lot of coaches as well. Because I think guys are just like, all right, well, what am I supposed to do other than this? Mm-hmm. But your background kind of sets you up to be able to do a lot of things. And you end up in this career where you're, you know, you get to be a college basketball analyst, which I think a lot of people think is super cool. It's maybe people think it's not as cool as like being on the podium and accepting a national championship trophy. But I I mean, I think it's cool. Like what drove you, you know, to journalism and, and, 
ESPN and things like that? And, and kind of how did that start? And, and how long did it take you to get to a point where you felt comfortable in that in that role? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, you know, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to still stay in basketball in some capacity, or at least in sport. And whatever I was going to do, I wanted the opportunity at some point. And, you know, again, people see me now and they think, oh, well, he just kind of arrived at, at where he's at. No, no, I, I started from the bottom. But I wanted the opportunity at some point to have a voice and, 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 and be able to express that voice. And so, you know, the, the medium of, of, of broadcasting and the, the opportunity to write, the opportunity to be on the radio um, was something that, again, you know, people say, well, you're, 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 you're crazy. I mean, it's a very competitive business. How are you going to get into that? Um, and I just started, you know, cold calling some folks and, and ended up being able to get a meeting with, with CBS um, uh, after the 2012 season. Uh, it was, I think it was that spring or summer, uh, flew up, met with uh, folks at CBS and you know, the other thing, guys, as you know, you got to get lucky in, in some things. And it just turned out that CBS had a CBS Sports Network had a 15 game Patriot League package that they did. And they were looking for a new analyst. And I had come, I had walked through their door at the right time and, you know, had the right pedigree and obviously had played at Army, which was in the Patriot League. And they hired me to do that. And so I started doing Patriot League games on CBS Sports Network, some of them women's games uh, for a 15-game package. And that's kind of – and then once I got the bug, like I didn't know if I was going to be good at it. I didn't know if I was going to like it. I just was at a point in my life where let me, let me see what this is. Let me, see, let me try this. And once I got the bug, once I you know, was in an arena and got to experience different – schools of thought, visit with different coaches, watch different teams practice, actually, you know, be a part of the live game experience and call a game. And, um, you know, I was kind of hooked and I, and I loved it. So let's actually go into a little bit of college basketball this year Uh, from people that you've seen. Like, I think a lot of people think Duke is, is likely the title favorite, but we've seen that as a young group of guys, like we saw him struggle against Gonzaga you know, who else is out there that you think is a legitimate title contender this year? I, I think uh, Michigan is the best team, at least right now as we sit here uh, at the, the beginning of December. I think Michigan's the best team. I think they've got a great shot. But let's not forget, they played in the national title game last year. Um, they, they, to me, are the best combination of being able to guard you consistently. And, and their offense, I mean, what John Beal, you talk about reinvention of a, of a philosophy and of a system and, and of a program. I mean, what he's done offensively is so, so different than what he was doing even three, four years ago. Um, so I think they're the best team. Uh, I think Tennessee, I have said this from the beginning. In fact, on our ESPN, you know, we, we pick our final four national championship teams. I, I actually picked them to win it all. I, I just, I love the way they play. So I think Tennessee's right there. Uh, I think Gonzaga is still there. Duke is will ha- will have a shot. I mean, there's no team that that plays in the open floor like they do, and obviously can match their talent. Now, how that manifests in in, a, in an NCAA tournament, we will we'll ultimately ultimately find out. I think Kansas, like I, I I think one through nine, Kansas may be the deepest team. I think they're they're still trying to figure out an identity, still trying to plug in some new pieces there with their two freshman guards and and Lawson and. Um, 
But I, I think right now those are the five best teams uh, that, I, that I've seen. What do you think about, you mentioned this earlier, but, you know, Coach K has done an unbelievable job of recruiting. I, I mean, changing just totally how he recruited. Do you, do you think that, like, with this particular team, with R.J. Barrett and Zion and uh, Cam Reddish, Trey Jones is really good, and I feel like he doesn't get talked about at all. Do, do you think Kay is worried about how they'll gel down the stretch, or do you feel like now he's done this enough with one-and-done guys that he thinks, like, okay, we'll be there at the end. We'll have at least a chance. Or are there some things that you've seen that, that kind of make you worried about if they'll be able to, you know, really ultimately get it done? You know, I, I think he has the roadmap now, Coach K. Like, I, I think he understands the, the progression the, the process, if you will. And, and so, you know, this group this year is different than last year's group. And that, that group was on the doorstep of the final four. I mean, if, you know, if Grayson Allen hits that shot, they're going to the final four and, and instead they lose in the elite eight. So, you know, I think this group is different. I, I think this group he has this year, A, is more talented than that group he had last year. And, and B, I think it fits the way that he wants to coach, the type of team he wants to coach. Um, we used to have to beg, and that's why you go back to the 2010 team and, and them playing, Coach K playing two big guys with Zubek and, and Lance Thomas. Like, that's not necessarily the way he wants to play. Um, and so I think this group, the versatility of it, the interchangeable parts, I, I think he is much more comfortable with this group. I think he is much more comfortable with its ability to guard. Uh, you know, the fact that he played as much zone, while I think it was the right move, um, it, it's not who he is. It's not how he wants to play. I, I think he feels like this group has the ability to become a much better defensive team. So I, I think it's, he has gotten to the point in his career, guys, where yes, he wants to win the ACC. Yes, he wants to win the ACC tournament. Yes, he wants to win as many games as possible. But really, for a guy like him, it comes down to are you winning the national title or are you not? And, and so this process has become for him about preparing that team for the NCAA tournament and how can we win six games to ultimately do it. And I, I do think the group he has this year, I do think he believes that this group is, is a team that could do that. I mean, they're definitely, they're definitely talented enough. There's no right. question. About like from, from one to five, I worry a little bit, you know, like they did have Grace Allen and even, even before, you know, with the team with Jaleel Okafor, they had some older guys that played. I, I do I'm a, I'm slightly concerned about the R.J. Barrett hero ball thing. I know Coach K kind of like, you know, wagged his finger at all of us and said, like, don't be worried about it. He'll get there. That worries me a little bit, Chris. Like, because I don't – I mean, it seems like the clear delineation is that R.J. Barrett gets shots at the end of the game. And I don't know yeah. that you – know, I don't know. I'm not, you know, I haven't won a 1,000 games. I've won zero games. But from my couch, I, I feel like maybe that's not right. But, I, I mean, we'll see. I, we argued on the show earlier about – whether or not he let the Gonzaga ending happen because that's a teaching moment for later in the year. And I could see that being the case, even though I'm sure he wants to win every game. I could see him yeah. being like, hey, let's see things and, and we can work on this down the road. And that's that's kind of my concern. Sorry to cut you off, Smalls, but I just yeah, wanted to You're that. good. I loved it. I just want to know if there's any other mid-major sleepers out there that uh, we should be aware of that could possibly make a Cinderella run. Yeah, you know, it's it, first of all, it it was nobody had Loyola Chicago, right? So I mean, there's probably yeah. a there's probably a mid major that I won't mention. I mean, the two that I've outside of the the obvious, the Nevadas, um, but Buffalo is really really good. 
And it's amazing to me. I mean, the, the two I'll give you are a combined 19 and 0 as we sit here right now in, in Buffalo and Furman. Buffalo is, is really good. I mean, they've got, I remember calling the MAC championship game two years ago, and CJ Massenberg had a really good game. And he was, you know, at the time, I think a sophomore. And, you know, I, I remember saying on air, like, folks, this is the future of Buffalo basketball, CJ Massenberg. And, and sure enough, here we are. The future is now. Um, they're two guards are absolute pit bulls i haven't seen two guards get after the ball as as well as they do so but buffalo is really really good and then Furman, um you know really good offense the the ability to sustain year to year they they made the tournament last year but they were a much more experienced group um they lost two really key starters for them but they they brought three back and and um they're really good on the offensive end and they're playing in a competitive conference the southern conference can be really good this year so yeah, so those would be probably the two that I've seen early here that, that would have a chance of winning games. And then final question before we, you know, take it to coach speak. Who's the best player that no one's really talking about right now in college basketball? You know, uh, wow. There, there's the, the guy that I would probably want and I would go to battle with any, any day of the week is Grant Williams from Tennessee. Um, he just. Is he the most talented? Probably not. Is he the best pro prospect? Absolutely not. Is he the best college basketball player that I would want to go to battle with? Yes, indeed. Like I, I would do, I would do better. And I've followed this kid. I called a lot of SEC games a couple years ago and I've seen Tennessee. I saw Tennessee kind of on the come up and I love that dude. And now he's got to stop fouling out of games. I mean, he fouled out of the Kansas game, he fouled out of the game yesterday. And unfortunately, Admiral Schofield uh, in that game against Gonzaga had a big game. But Grant Williams, to me, I think he's one of the five best players in America, and he's the kind of guy that I would want to coach, I would want to play with. That would be my guy. When, uh, when I was at CFC, we were recruiting Grant Williams as, like, CB3, yeah. like, and, and he was, you know, potentially going to go to Harvard. And I remember when he committed to CF, or to, sorry, to Tennessee – I thought that was a level up. Like I, I, I saw him in AAU. I wasn't sure he was good enough. I knew the motor played, but I wasn't sure if he was like even six seven. And they've sort of created this team, and this is a credit to Rick Barnes and his staff. But like, I mean, they just they just don't ever stop. They never take their foot off the gas. Like him and Schofield are unbelievable leaders. They've worked so hard. Their culture is ridiculous. Now I said at the beginning of the year I didn't think they had enough scoring to win the title, but. I mean, just they took Kansas to the wire. They they beat Gonzaga yesterday. Like, I, I mean, it's that argument's running a little bit thin for me. But Grant Williams is just unbelievable. Like, just so, he plays so hard, and he's like apparently just a great kid too. Just an awesome kid, like a great leader, yeah. great captain. Um, I do want to get into something that you said. We're going to do coach speak a little differently. You do write sometimes for the Athletic, and you had a pretty pretty like powerful article. I would say last year about. It's time to, about the college basketball investigation, and I kind of wanted to get your opinion on it now that we're not quite a year from that article. You wrote this on February 19th last year, and it's today. I'm not even sure of the date. I think it's December 10th, so almost a year, where you said it's, it's time to root out the cheaters in college basketball. It's time to expose the dirty laundry. House cleaning's been long overdue. I'm not going to go into the entire quote that I wrote down, but how do you currently feel about how the investigations played out and, and what do you think about the landscape of college basketball today, as opposed to about a year ago? I don't think it's any different to be honest with you. I mean, I, I think 
the FBI investigation may have act, acted as some level of a deterrent. So it may have scared people straight for a period of time. And maybe that, maybe that sustains, um, you know, uh, but my, my thing has always been, and that's kind of what I was saying in this, in this quote here. And I've, I've said multiple times on different outlets, if we don't have a system that roots out cheaters and then keeps them out, then you're, you're, you're always going to, then we're incentivizing the, the cheating that does go on. Do I think it's widespread? No. Uh, now, I don't think it's a blip, but I, I don't think it's widespread. I don't think it's rampant in our sport. I do think there are cheaters, and I do think there are cheaters who have been caught and then have been rehired at other schools. I mean, I, look, I think, I think Kelvin Sampson is a great coach. I do. But the fact that Kelvin Sampson got caught for cheating in Oklahoma, he got caught for cheating at Indiana for the same exact violation, by the way, and then was hired subsequently at Houston. Like that's, that's, what are we doing? You know what I'm saying? Or, or God bless, God bless Larry Brown. I think he's a great coach, but you know, gets caught cheating. He's cheated everywhere. So to me, like until we come to a place where there is, and I think the rights commission broached this idea until we come to a place where you get the people who are cheating and who have been found and investigated and, and have been, um, punished for cheating until you root them out of the game, then the risk for doing the wrong thing far outweighs, or the reward, I should say, for doing the wrong thing far outweighs the risk. So obviously you think, you know, the best way to do it is probably punish somebody at the highest level and that will kind of set the example. Do you think there's other ways? I mean, people have thrown around all different ideas of maybe making it giving the players an ability to make their own money. Do you think that might be a solution or are there any other types of solutions that need to happen to bring college basketball back to, you know, I guess a wholesome level? Yeah. Well, there's two things. One, and, and, you know, the rooting out of, of people who cheat, obviously that's more of a punitive stance. Philosophically speaking, unless you, unless you touch the money issue, you're you're going to always have this and and but the money issue being what you just said like unless you allow a elite talents to bypass college and just go or allow you know these really good players allow the market to determine who is worth a certain value while they're in college i.e letting them make money off of their name likeness etc you're not going to figure all of this out the other thing I would tell you is this, guys, and, and I, I called a game on Saturday. I called Florida State, and I was talking to Leonard Hamilton before the game. And guys like he, and I've talked to Danny Manning about this and different coaches who don't live in the one-and-done world a lot. We, are, we, we have to bring the focus back to the majority as opposed to the minority. Like We are so zeroed in on, and we are drafting these rules in the Rice Commission – it, we are basically talking about a tenth of 1%. We are talking about maybe, maybe 20 kids per year, maybe less. And, and, and now we're designing rules around those 20 kids. You know, to me, we, we've lost sight of, of what's ultimately important. Um, but you know, the way you root out the money is you, is you or the, the – the impropriety that centers around these kids and, and the money that they're, they're being given or their families are being given on the sly is, 
you, you bring it out into the light and you say, look, if the market will determine who's worth anything, and if you have the opportunity to make some money on, on whatever, they should be able to do that. Yeah, we, we've made this joke before that like what happens when a kid takes money and then he transfers? Does like the school get the money back or like does it take money <laughs> and commit somewhere else? Like because you have all these coaches now, they're like and I wouldn't say all these coaches, but I mean, people that listen to this show regularly know my connection on the AAU side, you know, as an event operator. But like it's just it's just this whole sort of like weird subculture that like nobody wants to say exists and everybody wants to act like it's the biggest surprise in the entire world when like someone has to get on the podium and be like yeah, this stuff comes up like this is a this is real live issues. But I, I just think like that part's very funny. It's like, OK, well, you take money and like, yeah, it should be just make it just make it OK to like profit off your name or whatever. Like, just mm-hmm. just make it fine. It's not a big yeah. deal. Like Zion Williamson is is one of five kids ever maybe that could legitimately make. I don't know, seven or eight figures while he's in college. There's not a ton of guys that can do that. It, it's a very small subset, like you said. But Zion, he's one guy that could make a ton of money off his name right now. If he wanted to, if he never yeah. wanted to play college basketball, he could have made a ton of money. Yeah. So I think like you're, I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. Smalls, you want to uh, jump into? Yeah, this conversation could go on forever. So I'm going to jump. <laughs> I'm going to take it over to the city review. We're going to do Durham, North Carolina, and you're going to give us three restaurants, two bars, and an activity to dur- do in Durham. And just take it away, Chris. We're excited to hear about it. All right. I'll give you uh so your three restaurants will give you um, – we're going to go downtown Durham uh, for two of them. And these are, these are two of my favorites. And downtown Durham, for, for somebody who first visited downtown Durham 15 years ago, okay, come on – which, by the way, you probably wouldn't have visited downtown Durham 15 years ago. Come on back. It is very welcoming now. It's a bit of a foodie town. So there is no question you got to do it. So the first place I'm giving you is Lucky's Delicatessen. All right. This is your New York deli. I'm talking, I'm not, this is not a trumped up New York. This is legit New York deli. You got to go there. This place is uh, unbelievable. So uh, I'm a delicatessen guy. So that's got to be, uh, that'll be your corned beef your, guy, r- corned beef, Russian dressing I, guy. What do you go with? What, what's like your go-to I, deli meal? I am I'm a I'm an Italian sub guy. So give me the give me the gabagool, give me the salami, give me the provolone, give me the uh, you know, I can't I can't go in there asking for cornbread as an Italian. Yeah, for sure. Little peppers, little onions, you know, a little oil and vinegar, throw it all on. The works is the works. Philly, baby. <laughs> um and then, you know, to stay on that theme, but unfortunately I'm I'm gonna give you uh uh, well, I'll give you one other steak place. Uh, it's called Nana Steak, and it's um, it's right next to the new Durham Performing Arts Center, uh, and it's it's unbelievable. It's a steakhouse. It's, it may be the best steakhouse in Durham, and um, phenomenal. Uh, and then I'm going to give you an Italian place, and this is this is again this is your quaint, like old school Italian place, and it's actually in uh, it's in Hillsborough, which is where I live, but it's right next door to Durham. It's called Antonia's. Uh, awesome. It's, it's family owned, just real quaint, uh, Italian place. I took, uh, I took Billis there one time and, and, uh, it's one of his favorite places now too. So good spot. Wait, can we ask you a question about Jay Billis for a second? Uh, not, not to like throw him under the bus, 
But is there a time when you're just like sitting at the table and he just has like an alarm go off and he has to rail against the NCAA like he's contractually <laughs> obligated to do it like every six to eight hours? Because I'm not saying that the things he says are wrong. It's just like now I feel like I turn on the TV and no matter what I see him at, like him just crushing the NCAA just has to come up. It's like it's like it's like clockwork, I think, Chris. And I love <laughs> well, you know, I, I think Jay has become the preeminent voice. Um certainly for, for those who speak in college athletics on the amateurism piece. And so I, I think, you know, there's, there's a passion that he has for the discussion. There's a, I think there's an audience that wants to, when there is an issue that comes up, there's an audience that, is, that wants to know what Jay thinks about it, understandably so. So, I, you know, look, I, I think th- there's, there's a big part, of, and people think that, like, this has just been manufactured by Jay. No. Jay has felt this way going back to when he taped, he put tape over the Adidas logo on his sneakers. Like Jay has been an advocate for these types of issues going back to when he was an athlete himself. So I think, you know, you're talking over 25 years um, in this space and with a passion for this. So I, I think it's, it comes from a very, very honest place. I do think I, I honestly agree with that. Like, there's never been a time where I've watched him talk about this and be like, I think that he's faking it. There are times of people on ESPN where I'm like, I don't understand how you can possibly think this. But with him, I, I don't think that he's faking this. Like, I think he really right. does want to be an advocate for student athletes because he's seen it from both sides. I mean, he was he was a player at the highest level. He was a coach at the highest level. And he's a lawyer. I, I mean, I, he gets it, I think. But it's, I, I it's do. hanging fruit. It has become a low-hanging fruit subject for a lot of people, and there are and it's it is it has become the easier argument to make. Like finding nuance in the other direction on these issues is has become less easy. But again, for Jay, it has been there for well over twenty-five years. He has made most of the arguments, framed most of the arguments that people are now glomming onto and making themselves. So that's why I, I respect the job. Now, look, is it too much? Well, look, what's not too much in the media space now? But I think there is a lot about everything that Jay says about this that comes from a very genuine, authentic place. All right, getting back to City Review, we just need two more bars. And we can talk <laughs> about Jay Bells. We can go to both these bars in succession. We'll just... Talk about Jay Bells for eight hours and tell me. Activity <laughs> <That's after>. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I'll give you the, the bar. Um, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Hillsborough, but they're, they're neighbor, it's not a different town, all right? I'm not violating the rules of the game here. The, uh, the wooden nickel in, uh, in Hillsborough is got the best wings. I'm telling you right now, Raleigh, Chapel Hill, Durham, Hillsborough, the wooden nickel has the best wings. In, in those four surrounding towns. And uh, it's like an Irish, you know, bar, pub. It's got, uh, if it's not snowing like it is this weekend, it's, uh, it's got a nice outdoor area. So that's, um, that would be a, a really good bar. Um, and then one in downtown Durham that you have to hit. It's got the, an unbelievable cocktail menu that uh, I think I've tasted uh, everything on the cocktail men- menu about four times over. The Oh, unbelievable stuff. Bar Virgil is, is what it's called, um, or Bar Virgil for Southerners who don't have uh, any sort of culture to them. Uh, it is, uh, it's phenomenal. And it's right, again, it's right uh, adjacent to the, the Durham Performing Arts Center. So it's good stuff. 
I totally love that you're a Southern transplant like I am. Like I you know, <laughs> lived outside of DC, lived in Philly eight years, and then moved to Charleston and now Nashville. And like I feel the same thing about that. Like just no to borrow a word you just use, like no nuance to things that go on down here. You just this, uh, this looks like it should be said. Like okay, in the South, like this is how we say it. It's very funny to me. Uh, let's go into ten touches because we'll get to cocktails as an activity. Who is the uh, funniest person you've uh, ever interviewed? You know, uh, I do a, a show every day on, on Sirius XM on channel 371. It's called ACC Today. Uh, 371 is the ACC channel. So there's your plug for the show. Um, we, we interviewed a while back Rocket Ishmael. Ragib Ishmael, uh, the great Notre Dame star. And I got to tell you, man, we were in fits. Like he was telling Lou Holtz stories. He does a Lou Holtz impression. Um, I mean, it, it was unexpected. Like we, when they told us rocket was coming on, I was like, okay, you know, he'll probably mail it in. He was a little bit late getting on the interview. He was hard to pin down. I'm like, man, like this is not going to go well. He got on and from jump, he was the funniest dude that I have ever talked to on the air. And so it was a radio interview, which gave us a little bit, a little bit of breathing room to get into some things. Rocket Ishmael, I'm telling you, phenomenal. All right, who's the most interesting college basketball coach? Could be a head coach or an assistant, in your opinion. Mark Few. Mark Few, hands down. Um, I always, you know, I always felt, and I don't think I'll ever get back into coaching, but if I ever did, I would want to do it like Mark does. Um, he is, he under, he's got the perfect work-life balance that I would want to have. He's got the perfect temperament that I would want to have. Now, He's competitive as a son of a bitch, okay? It's like he don't make don't let the the Birkenstocks and the cool demeanor and all that fool you. He is as competitive as anybody I I've ever met. But he's he's so good in a practice, he's so good with his players. He's when you talk to him, he doesn't necessarily want to talk basketball. He wants to talk other things like he is he is the most interesting guy I have met in this profession. Yeah, when I worked, I worked for Doug Wojcik for just a couple months before all that stuff went down at College of Charleston. And he always said, like, he went and visited Gonzaga. And he actually went and worked there after, I think, as a volunteer just for a year. But he said he went to Gonzaga and he was blown away at the way Mark Few handled all the things that he did. Like, he would be fishing with his kids and he would just call the assistants and be like, you know what, I'm not going to make it for this one hour workout today. And it just wasn't a big deal to him. Whereas, like, yeah. other coaches would, like, freak out and and it would he just said like his ability to kind of understand like what was important in his life and in the long run was unparalleled and he he told me he thought like every coach should go spend a couple days with Mark Few for that specific reason like I've heard that before uh this could be interesting because of your time in the service but what's your worst travel experience yeah you know um well I'll give you one in 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 this business I'm doing now, and this was like, this was my first or second year with CBS Sports Network. And I would like to think that I would still do this now. In fact, I know that I would, but I was so desperate to make an impression and do a good job. And I was so grateful for the opportunity to, to call a game that two years ago, I was supposed to do a Lehigh I think they they may have been playing Bucknell, but it was a it was a game at Lehigh, and there was bad weather 
here in Raleigh and there was like weather up the East Coast. And so my flight, I was leaving the day before and my flight got canceled. So I decided that I was going to drive the, you know, on a, on a good day, good weather, it would take me probably seven hours to get from North Carolina to Lehigh. It ended up taking me probably 11 hours, I think, that, that time. And I drove. I said, you know what, screw it. I told my wife, I'm just going to drive there. I can't miss this game. I got to do this. You know, this is what I'm doing now, and I got to make an impression. So I got my car and I drove through some horrible weather from North Carolina to Pennsylvania and um, ended up getting there, you know, almost almost close to midnight. And then uh, but got up the next day, called the game. And, and uh, but that was that was a miserable, miserable experience. That, that's the stuff where people say, like, hey, you had an opportunity because you were a former player. You're you know, your coach K's son-in-law, like you obviously were going to make it like that's the stuff that people don't know about. Like when you say like, look, I have to make an impression and it's important to you and like your sense of pride. So I appreciate you telling us that story. Um, what are you currently reading? And uh, if you have time, what are you currently binge watching? Yeah. Um, I am currently reading a, a book by Stephen Ambrose called Undaunted Courage. And I don't know if either of you guys have read it, but it's about the Lewis and Clark expedition uh, to basically go West and map out, what the uh, it was right after Thomas Jefferson had bought the Louisiana Purchase, and they wanted to know what was west of the Mississippi River, and you know basically these guys going off into the wilderness, and you know it was about a two year expedition. I'm about halfway through the book, um, but I'm a big I'm I'm a big like you know lone survivor. Or there's a there's a book on uh, Ernest Shackleton's uh, adventure to. Uh, the Antarctic. He wanted to, to basically traverse the Antarctic and they had a shipwreck. And anyway, I'm, I'm a big like adventure sort of uh, mis adventure mishap, how you come out from those types of things, guys. So, um, so this one, this one I'm reading now is pretty good. And I'm I, look, pump Narcos into my veins. I, I am on the third season. Uh, I am about three episodes into the, uh, the Narcos now that's taking place in Mexico. And you can pump that, that show into my veins. Uh, all right, last one for me. What is the greatest game you've ever covered? You know, and I don't say this because it's North Carolina, so I don't want Carolina fans to jump all over me because of this, but I had a chance to call the Wofford-North Carolina game last year, and you could go your entire career and not get an upset like that. Uh, it, was in, it was in Chapel Hill. Um, I remember at, at halftime, Wofford was up. And the play-by-play guy I was working with, uh, John Brickley, turns to me and says, what, I mean, what do you think, what's going on here? And I said, look, Roy's going to yell at him at, Roy Williams is going to yell at them at halftime, and they'll come out, and they're going to go up 15, and it'll be, this will be a 30-point game. And sure enough, Wofford comes out, they go up 14 in the, before the first TV timeout of the second half, and I turned to him at the, at the TV timeout, I said, we're going to have a game here. So that was, that was pretty cool. That was one of the... One of the best, and I'll go back. I did the MAC championship. Uh, I think this one was was two years ago because I didn't do it last year. And Buffalo hit hit a last second shot, basically hit, hit a shot a three with about three seconds left to to go to the NCAA tournament. That was a pretty cool moment, also. What's your favorite and least favorite practice drill? Anything defensive. So defensive slides. Get it out of my get it out of my way. Uh, any sort of charge drill, hate it. And I'll tell you another one. 
any sort of rebound, you got you guys ever, you know, the Connecticut rebounding drill or just the one where they throw it out and you got to, it's like the one-on-one rebounding, like get those out of my, out of my world. I, I want nothing to do with those. It's amazing the amount of coaches that have said like eliminate like circle rebounding or triangle rebounding, but then yet they still put it into their practice plan. Right. <laughs> That's, that's, that's like one of those coach things though. Like if you don't do it and then you get killed on the boards, you're just gonna, you're gonna never sleep. You're gonna not sleep for three yeah. days. So I think that's why, that's why they still do it. They're just like, I did it. I did it anyway. <laughs> what would you do if you, if not in sports? You know, I'd probably be miserable doing it. Um, but I, I had a, uh, I had an urge at one point to go to law school and, and be a lawyer. Uh, I'm somebody who, I love, I grew up in a house that lived in a world of debate. Um, I'm a little bit like my cousin Vinny, where, you know, I, I, I'm the guy who's trying to figure out how the magician's doing the trick and trying to figure all that out. It's, it's a very layman's reason why I would have been a lawyer, because I don't think I, I could see myself doing anything else besides either coaching or doing what I'm doing now. But um, I, I, I'm, I'm a relatively intuitive person, relatively intelligent person, and I love to argue. So uh, a trial lawyer would probably be something I'd, I would uh, go after if I wasn't doing sports. What would you change about college basketball? Man, do I, it, we've, we don't have an hour for this. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, would, I would change the NCAA tournament to a lesser number. Now, this is my pie in the sky. This will never happen. But if you're, if you're asking me what I would change, I would take the tournament back down to 36, 34 teams, whatever. I'm not a math major, but whatever number works, I, I would reduce the, the NCAA tournament. Because here's the problem with the way we discuss the tournament now. Okay, And this is where the college football at four, this is the opposite for that. With the college football playoff, when it comes down to debating who is getting into that, we end up talking about the best teams. Like we are talking about the best teams in college football. We are debating the best teams in college football. Because the NCAA tournament is, at, is in the 60s, we end up talking about m- mediocre, marginal, in some cases, bad teams more then we talk about the good teams, like, you know, because we may debate, okay, who are the one seeds, but at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. So we spend the bulk of our time discussing the most important event in our sport. We spend the bulk of our time talking about teams that are 500 in conference and really, you know, at the end of the day, marginal teams. Yeah, you're talking about like a bad bubble. And, and, and I do think the one thing I, I will say is a disagreement, but not to start an argument is like, there may be good mid-major teams that get matched up against, but bad high major teams you know like we don't know if middle tennessee they had like 30 wins and they wouldn't have gotten in the tournament or this year loyola chicago who's not playing great like they actually might be good but we don't get a chance to really see it so they get compared to to like i don't know old miss will be like seven and ten in the sec and they're in the discussion but that team had opportunities and they're not very good so I, I agree with that aspect of it like the bad high majors but yeah 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 it's you know the the thing about that and just not to cut you off but like, I'm not somebody who has a bleeding heart for a UCF in the college football thing. Like, there, there, are, there are measurables. And unfortunately, we live in a world where schedule matters and all that. So, like, again, not to disagree with you, I, I, I think there are certainly in our world of college basketball, there are mid-majors. We, look, we've seen it. I mean, we saw it last year with Loyola Chicago that are good teams. 
my solution is instead of saying, let's put more mid-major teams in and, and try to extrapolate whether those teams are good enough or not, let's just shrink the tournament and get the best 35, 36 teams in there, and then let's move on with that. I mean, I think I definitely think that's fair. And like I said, especially in the college football playoff, like UCF, it's just it's just never going to happen. You know what I mean? Like it's just not going to happen right. for me. Disappointing. The one thing with college basketball scheduling too, though, and you know this, I'm sure, there's no benefit for certain high majors to play good mids either. That that's the part that kind of like gets me hung up. Is like nobody wants to play. Like now Gonzaga can get games because like they're going to make the tournament anyway. So if someone loses at Gonzaga or loses to Gonzaga at home, it doesn't really hurt them. But if you go play, let's just say Nevada last year. Like, you can easily lose that game, and it hurts you. So, like, for high majors, there's no benefit for them to play good mids. And, like, I don't know. I, I struggle with that. I do. I, I really do, Chris. I see what you're saying, and I see, like, putting in 32 teams or whatever, just your automatic qualifiers. It kind of just is what it is. But, like, there's so many things with scheduling that get involved. It's just such a deeper discussion. And you know as well as I do, I think, that, like, with as much money as is involved, like the tournament's more likely to go to 96 than it is to go to 36. And that would, I think, I think that would be awful, personally. Awful, awful, <laughs> awful. Best player <laughs> coming out, not named Zion. Man, um, for, for the sake of, of not uh, being redundant, I guess I won't say R.J. Barrett. Um, you know, I got to tell you, uh, I'll give you two guys. The, I'll give you one freshman. The kid at Arizona State, Lugans Dort, is terrific. Um, and I, I don't follow a lot of the recruiting, so I really didn't know much about this kid. Um, but he's got – like these guys physically – John Shambi and I were talking about this over the weekend. Like, and you guys will appreciate this. There was a time, like say 10 years ago, even less than that, say like seven years ago, where you could look at a team and you could pretty much pick out who the freshmen are who the soft based on how they looked like the freshmen were underdeveloped. You can't do that anymore, man. Like these freshmen are so physically ready to go. I, it, it blows my mind, but he's, he would be one. And I, I'll tell you the other, and it's, it's a name that we all know, but like, I'm a guy who, how much has your game improved over a period of time? So like Rui Achimura, you go back to two years ago where this dude did not play a second in the NCAA title game. And where he is at now, to me, that's exponential growth. He's got really good size, terrific athlete. He's, he's actually got a better feel for a guy who hasn't been playing all that long. Um, I, I think he has a chance to, to go real high because, again, he, he has gotten so much better and I, I think will only continue to get better. Let, last uh, question here. You have a hidden talent? I will crush anybody. And you can mark this down at a game of Seinfeld trivia. I am, I know every, every episode verbatim. And I'm telling you, like, and I'm talking deep cut Seinfeld trivia. I will, I will go to town on anybody. So a little known fact, a, a guy I used to work for, uh, Coach Herb McGee, is, yeah. knows almost everything about like we used to just sit in his office and he would just go through Seinfeld and just be like you remember this episode I'm like you know I'm, I'm 20 23 years old and like I hadn't watched Seinfeld since I was 11 and he was just <laughs> so I, I'd like to see that would be a good matchup little you versus coach bring it 
<laughs> and then, bring it. Tell the shot doctor. Tell the shot doctor to, to, to bring it. I got challenge it. Challenge issued. Challenge issued. Uh, two future podcast guests for us. Man, what, you know, I don't know if you're limiting me, but we um, again, I'll, I'll go back to a guy that that I brought up earlier in the in the show, um, the superintendent at West Point. I don't know if you have any military guests or, or on or not, but if you were ever able to get this guy named Daryl Williams. He's the first African-American superintendent at West Point in the school's 212-year history, which is an incredible fact in and of itself. Um, but he actually spoke to our, our seminar, our college basketball seminar at ESPN uh, at, before the season started and just, I mean, brought the house down. And he's, just, he's got a great perspective and a great guy, a guy that I, I, really, um, I, I really, really respect. Um, and then uh, you've already had my guy Matt Langle on, so otherwise I would I would have thrown my, my man Langle out there. All right, last uh, segment, same two questions for every guest. We call it parting shots. Chris, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Uh, I, I, I got to give you two, and one of them was from my my time in the service. Um, you know, this is this is a military. It's a military thing, and, and it's it's really an Army Ranger, Navy SEAL kind of a thing. But it's it permeates throughout the Army, and and I heard it at Beast Barracks um, when I was a plebe at West Point, and it 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 was um, when you when you think that you have reached your max, when you think you are all tapped out, that you've given everything that you have, you you've really only given. 40% of what you're capable of giving. And, you know, it, it obviously applies to, uh, you know, to the military and, and to that lifestyle and, and physic, something physically you're, that you're doing. But, I, you know, I think it apl- applies to any walk of life that, you know, we all have, we're all fatigued at some point. We all have a, a laundry list of things we have to do. We have family obligations, whatever. When you think you're tapped out, you're really only at about 40%. And I, I use that every day of my life. Um, and then I'll give you one other, the, the other thing, um, and this is an old skip Prosser, uh, adage, but, um, you know, when I was doing, I was doing a Lafayette Navy women's game when I first got into broadcasting and real barn burner. Yeah. Real, real barn burner. Uh, this was, I had, I had come from being on the bench at Duke and I was doing live and I had a friend of mine call me. And, you know, we were talking, he said, he said, what are you doing? I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm about to do a Lafayette Navy women's game. And, and he said, Hey man, kill it where you're at, kill it where you're at. And I have, I'm telling you right now, boys, like I, I have used that and I've kept that in my mind and I've, I've used it in talks that I give and, and speeches. Like you never know who's watching. You never know who's listening you never know but ultimately you're you're it's got your name on it and you know kill it where you're at and ultimately if you're good enough things will shake out and so i've i've used uh, i've used that a lot you're face to face with your 18 year old self what are you telling that person worry less worry less you know we we, we worry about look it, it's good to be diligent it's good to you know, to, to be concerned about certainly professionally things that in your life, opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. But when you look back, and I'm sure you guys can relate, when you look back, we worry about such insignificant things and think about how stress-free, you know, your life would be if you just 
you know, put things into a, I guess, put things into the right perspective. And, and so I, I worry less would be, would be my advice. I think that's interesting because I'm sure as a, as a plebe, as you put it, you, you worried about making your bed and making sure you could bounce a quarter off it or make sure your boots were shined and stuff. So it's interesting to hear you say that. Cause it, it's funny that like, you probably didn't have the opportunity at 19 to worry less. Whereas like Smalls and I were worried, like, all right, can we, do we have $27 to buy a 30 of, you know, Natty light tonight? you you were worried about some other things. <laughs> $27, that gets you about three of them back in my day. We can, yeah, in, in North Philly, we could get a bunch of Natty light for that. Uh, all right. So, Chris, I appreciate you taking as much time as you did this morning. Uh, like he said, analyst at ESPN, host on Sirius XM Radio, writer for their contributor for The Athletic. He, he is everywhere. He is also at Chris underscore Spatola on Twitter. He needs 86 followers for 10,000, so let's help him out. But, Chris, I appreciate it. You know, find him wherever college basketball is being talked about, you know, when you turn on your TV next. And if you have, if you're fortunate enough to have Sirius, he, he is also on there. But, Chris, you know, totally totally appreciate you coming on and uh we we will talk soon and and follow you the rest of the year so thank you so much